Today's episode is brought to you by public.com, an investing platform which you'll be hearing more about later on in the show. But for now, let's get into today's interview. It is Monday, June 5th. I am here with Vincent Daniel, uh, an investor who needs no introduction. Vincent did an interview uh, with me and his partner, Porter Collins, in January 2022, which remains one of my favorite interviews played by uh, uh, Jeremy Strong um, in, in the movie The Big Short. Vincent, great to have you back. How have you been? I've uh, been great, Jack, and thanks for having me back. Uh, love your podcast. Love all of your list of guests that you get on your podcast are pretty much second to none. And uh, I'm amazed at what you and so proud of what you've been doing over the last few years. This is awesome. Oh, well, thank you. You know, you were one of my first big gets. So, uh, you know, it's, it's good. It's good to be there. I remember when I first invited you on my podcast, I was like, so this for guidance is this, is this, would you consider coming on? And you said, it's a definite maybe. <laughs> then we, then we had to look you up and, and, and realize that you were affiliated, which was funny with, with, with crypto and the like, we're like, you sure you want us on the, on this podcast? So, but it, it's worked out great. And, you know, as you know, and well, audience will know me and you uh, talk uh, consistently and, and frequently, and it, it's really is value added to my process as well. So I thank you. Well, wow, it's definitely a value add to, to my process. And I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that we're in touch. So Vincent, talk to me about the current setup. You know, in January 2022, interest rates were at zero, but that, you know, you knew they were headed higher. Stocks, high valuation tech stocks, most of all would suffer. It was a great uh, time to pick out short candidates, a lot of overvalued stocks. I think the current setup right now is a little bit tougher for you know your style of investment than it was you know, you know 14 months ago. Tell us about the current setup. That's an understatement, Jack. Um, uh, and, we, and we could get into it. So if we just rewind the clock, uh, and I think we could go back to November 2021, the, 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 the glory days of people who think like me, who tend to be more value-oriented and who tend to short stocks occurred when... Um, Fed Chair Powell pretty much cried no moss, right? And, and said, uh, inflation's worth, worse than people think. It's not transitory. And I really have to tighten. And what that allowed was the liquidity started to suck out of the market. And as a result of it, the way we think about it, it started to expose a lot of the things that we were feeling and some of the names we were seeing, particularly in the what I would call fake consumer fintech area, the firms, the upstarts, the, the, the SoFi's of the world. And that allowed us for us to express finally, uh, stress finally express our views on the short side because we no longer had the 400-pound gorilla, the boogeyman, the Federal Reserve, having the back of what we like to consider all things that were stupid at the time, very highly valued, zero cost of capital type business models uh, that would suffer wildly once the liquidity was gone. So um, that lasted, that glorious time lasted, in my opinion, till about, up until about October 2022. Now, the reason why I choose that era, that era was that's when I think Jerome Powell actually showed that the emperor really had no clothes. And if, if we think about what happened during October 2022, that was probably peak tightening of liquidity. The UK... Their, their pension system was in, sh was in shambles. Uh, so global central banks uh, actually started instituting QE. It wasn't clandestine QE. It wasn't shadow. It was QE. They printed money um, or expanded the balance sheet, to be exact. Mm -hmm. 
And then in addition to that, if you remember, the yen was weakening to the point where it was becoming a major, major concern. And there too, I think there were, there were uses of dollar swap lines. So from there, liquidity started to surge. And from then on, shorting things became quite difficult up until fast forward to today. So when you say liquidity started to go up, what does that mean? Because there are people who are very in the weeds and they track, you know, private credit creation, central bank balance sheet, the whole nine yards that, you know, Michael Howell does a great job of adding that all into one figure. But I feel like to someone such as yourself, who's in the trenches every day, you know, trading stocks, buying them long, selling them short, doing all sorts of stuff. Does liquidity just mean when things go up? Yeah, but there's, but it's sort of an aid or, or a glide path that there's increased the way I think about it, whether it's debt creation, monetary creation, uh, and yes, the byproduct is things go up, right? But you could see the, how I think about it is an astute investor, particularly someone like Howell, who picked up on this and whatever measures he was looking at that, that give him his proprietary edge, saw that for the first time in a while, the Fed was more accommodative than restrictive. And, and student investors, I think, picked up on that and said, mm, it's probably more game on, or at least on a rate of change basis, a lot more game on than it was three, four, five months ago, particularly relative to October. Uh, got, got, so walk me through that. So in what way was the Fed more accommodative? Because on the official metrics in terms of rates, you know, rates only went higher and then quantitative tightening continued. So what you, know, you talked about the dollar swap lines, but what did you see in the market where you said, aha, I, I think I'm, you know, I, I'm seeing a, a signs that the Federal Reserve is easing off a little bit. For me, it was just the data point that they came in and bailed the, U, the UK pension system and, and actually expanded the balance sheet in order for the price of gilts, which were rising, the yields were rising at the time, to actually decline. Probably a more example nearer and dearer to my heart was March of this year, during the whole banking crisis. Um, and I say near and dear to my heart because I've covered financials my entire life yeah. is at that point in time, we created a, the fed created a new facility to essentially shore up any of the assets that were on bank balance sheets that needed a funding home because deposits were in runoff. So there, and you actually did see for a temporary time being, you actually did see an expansion of the balance sheet, as a result of their their initiatives. And, and again, from, from just reading the tea leaves, people started to realize that the Fed, while they want something to break, when something breaks, and those were pretty big things that broke, um, they weren't gonna follow through and allow things to clear. They were gonna help the system and, 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 and maintain the, the current status quo. So you think that the bank term funding program and the use of the discount window, you're right, the balance sheet uh, went higher. It was a vigorous increase and definitely it went up, not down, even while the Fed was doing quantitative tightening. So not technically, not officially QE, we, we both agree on that. But do you think that that expansion of the balance sheet played a role in you know, why NVIDIA is at 400 bucks right now? Why the S&P 500 is you know, above 4,200? It played a role. It, played, it definitely played a role. There are other reasons why I think NVIDIA and, you know, the Magnificent Seven or whatever, you know, acronym uh, phrase we're using to determine the stocks that are going up. But it definitely played a role. Um, 
think about the way I look at it, think about what would have happened if they didn't bail out the uninsured depositors at Silicon Valley. I think the, the risk tolerance framework of the incremental investor and the institutional investor would be materially different. There would be fear. Whereas that day we realized that almost every deposit, whether it's uninsured, insured, uh, of a like was going to be saved. That was a material change in, in the thought process, or, or I, I would actually argue concrete ev- evidence in the thought process that at the end of the day, the Fed will have your back in some way, shape or form. So, not, to say, not, not to say that capital wasn't lost. It was. The equities were allowed to go to zero. The prefs were allowed to go to zero. I would argue that was a material improvement than what we saw during the Great Recession. But nevertheless, we didn't go full Monty. So, mm-hmm. um, so. so where does that leave us now? If in January 2022, you said the Fed put is dying, the Fed will not be there to bail out these, you know, uh, unprofitable technology companies that you know, may have made promises to the investors that they can't keep. And that thesis has worked out. What about now? Do, you know, if the Federal Reserve is shadow easing uh, or fiscal yeah. tightening, does it mean that you to, to remain short the market or to not be long the market is fighting the Fed, which is something you don't want to do? And I think for the past six months, you have, I mean, the results are obvious, right? But but you have been fighting the Fed by shorting. And and a little disclaimer, as, as I always do during every podcast, I have to, please, 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 for all investors, don't short stocks. It's a different game. Um, I think Mark Cahode said it on a, on a recent Spaces call or, or, or podcast. I forget it was. So you have to, you're, you have to be an absolute moron to want to short stocks. And yeah. so it's, it's, it's not for the faint of heart. It's just a different way of investing. And so I would strongly suggest anyone, and look, I, as I say it, Porter and I laugh at ourselves. It's like, you're giving this advice, yet you continue to short stocks, you idiots. Um, uh, but that being said, yes, you have been fighting the Fed. I think if we fast forward to today, and we'll probably get into the conversation, there are interesting aspects of the market now that actually might invite a little bit more short selling. We'll see. Uh, famous last words. Sentiment is quite different than what it was, let's say, in the latter part of 2022, where everyone was bearish. That is not the case anymore. Uh, in addition to that, I think there could be a risk to liquidity uh, coming with the recent passage of, of the bill, which will allow our country to once again issue debt. Yeah, and when you say short stocks, are you talking about individual names or the market? Because there can be a reason, again, not, not inviting it, oh, this comp- company, it's a, you know, a company that has a lot of problems, and I've done my homework, so I know, and you know, I'm going to get out if it here, I'll cover here, and you know, maybe you can be successful there. But shorting the S&P 500, which it has all these mega cap names, which you know, have a history of being so good. I, what is, you know, so you're long short, but you, you're long single names, short single name stocks. Correct. But there are people already who try to do long single names, short the index. And to me, that seems a little, uh, a little problematic. I, I'm, I'm so glad you provide additional clarity to the statement that I just made because it was required. I hate shorting the overall indices, the S&P. Uh, the only time I don't mind doing it is when I think we're at extreme, extreme sentiment. But in general, and you are correct, we are in the business of shorting individual names, mainly because we think we have a differentiated view uh, that is different to the market 
and a bunch of other factors that factor into that we think we're actually going to make a return uh, on our short, a positive return on our short. So we're not, we as a group, Porter and myself, don't use shorts to hedge for the most part our our long positions. We actually use it as an alpha generator. And hopefully sometimes, like last year it was, this year it hasn't been. But yes, it, it, is, it is on a single stock basis. I, I, I just should say, in 2022, in 2021 and 2023, you and Porter had a fantastic year. And was it true that last year you guys made money both on the long side and on the short side, which is you know a pretty good achievement? We did, we did, and 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 thank you, uh, thanks a lot. And, and the reason why we made money on the short side was two factors. Like I said, one, it was risk off from a liquidity perspective in the Fed, and two, because it was risk on from a liquidity perspective for so damn long there were things that were just so ripe to be significantly lower. Their business models and the valuations didn't warrant them being anywhere near they were where they were sitting in terms of the stock prices. So um, yeah, it was, it was, it was a great year and it was a banner year in that, in that regard. Earlier you referenced the debt ceiling that the treasury, now that the debt ceiling has passed, treasury has to issue you know, close to a trillion dollars of treasury bills that could suck out liquidity how does that impact your thinking? And you know, in a prior call, you said that you know it's strange that on the one hand the economy is fine, you know, it's defied all these recession calls, but you know, the debt ceiling is it's, it's a big fat thing. It confuses it confuses me greatly. And let me let, 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 let's think about the setup that we're, we're we're looking at right now. Right on the one hand, I think no one can deny that economic activity is decent, right? And 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 it might be the lagging in indicators. People like me might quarrel that the leading indicators are poor, but uh, unemployment's great, spending's decent, people are out, restaurants and hotels. That would strongly suggest that perhaps maybe the Fed needs to go a little bit further when it, when it goes to interest rates. I'm not a big believer or subscriber of that, but, but I could see based upon the tail of the tape that we're looking at, that perhaps that would be a suggested outcome of the Fed. On the other hand, over the past two weeks, we just fast-tracked a bill that had shockingly tremendous partisan vitriol and rhetoric, but very little partisan action to pass something into law to ensure be- that our checking account, our country's checking account, doesn't go to zero. We were running out of money, right? And Every time, Jack, I speak to people with regards to that statement, I don't know if I'm trying to do it in form of hyperbole or, or, or get a reaction uh, to people. I definitely am. Everyone's dismissive of it. And, and particularly, we, we were having a conversation with saying, and you were joking, of course, and you're saying, well, yeah, Benny, it's fine. Now we could issue debt and we're all good. Well, we're, we're still running chronic fiscal deficits. We still have a structural problem. And yet, how do we cure our ill, which is our government's ill, which is awful fiscal imbalances with more debt, which is going to help create more worse fiscal imbalances in the future? And how is that bullish? And how are we raising rates, which is going to crowd out other expenditures uh, on the fiscal side? The whole thing blows my mind, right? It really does. Uh, And so, yes, it has that has weight on me. And it continues to weigh on me going forward, being really constructive on overall markets. 
Right. Well, so I recently interviewed Warren Mosler, uh, you know, proponent of modern monetary theory, which you know, viewers can surmise you are a, a critic of. You do not agree with it. But just looking at the the facts, just a, a quick back test. Okay, you since two thousand nine, U.S. has run a large amount of fiscal deficits. It has spent more than it takes in. China, pretty much the exact reserve, reverse case. It has run a current account surplus. Yep. Uh, it it uh, tra- trade surplus. Uh, it. Gets gets more than it than it pays for. So, but judging from the stock market, you know S and P five hundred SPY versus MCHI, that the, the whatever Chinese index you want to take it, I think U.S. stocks have drastically outperformed the Chinese market. So, wouldn't that you know, suggest that debt is actually good for the stock market? Well, so far it has been right, um, but I wouldn't necessarily say it's good for the long run. I it it doesn't make sense to me to run. And look, we've been able to get away with it as a country because we are the reserve currency. And I think we have tested uh, our status in the world. I'm not saying it's going to end tomorrow, Jack. I don't know when it ends. All I know is that the way we're running our country on fiscal imbalances is stupid, right? It's really stupid. And the only thing that we could fall back on, which is fair, is that on a relative basis, it might not look as stupid as what other people are doing. But if, if you're the global reserve currency, I think there is some rules that you have to adhere to to ensure that we remain the world's reserve currency. And I think we're violating them. I'm not saying this is a tomorrow event. I'm not saying we could time any of this, but I, no one can explain to me that what we're doing is an, is an intelligent uh, policy. And so as a result, getting back to markets, that makes it quite difficult to get super constructive um, particularly that if we're in the, the throes of issuing $800 billion to a trillion dollars just to refill our checking account, um, and someone has to buy that debt at a certain price and rate of interest, at the very least, let's just say my idiotic views on the fiscal situation is therefore idiotic, doesn't mean anything. Um, it is a crowding out and a potential reduction in liquidity right, of the market, because we have to suck up that asset, that team, that those treasury issuances is going to suck up liquidity that could have gone someplace else. We'll see. Right. And I know modern monetary theory is does not agree with that crowding out theory. But in terms of liquidity and markets, it makes sense. There's a trillion dollars that's of cash that's going to have to buy treasuries that otherwise could buy stocks, Carvana, Bitcoin, right. everything. That, that makes sense. And Jack, Jack, you threw a nice jab in there. Not to criticize modern monetary theory, a sizable portion of their thesis, which don't get me wrong, I think they have a very descriptive, their descriptive method of what happens is, is accurate. And I thank them because I've read Stephanie Kelton's book. And, and quite frankly, I learned a lot reading the book. However, I think it was chapter two, the infamous chapter two, which said what happens when things get overheated, right, in the form of inflation. And they said, well, we'll just raise taxes and we could tighten based upon the increase of taxation, which will take liquidity out of the system. Tighten, the problem or, was, tighten or cut spending. But they're both based upon the same premise, which is you're going to be able to get Congress to do either or. or. And I think we've learned they don't. And won't. So as a result, as a result, <laughs> their theory doesn't work. 
because of that flaw. A critic could say, oh, Jack and, and Vincent, uh, the Treasury issued a ton of debt in 2020, and from March 2020, assets took off like a rocket ship. But the key thing is, well, number one, rates were at zero, and number two, the Fed bought a ton of that debt. Now the Federal Reserve is letting its balance sheet roll off, so the private sector has to absorb that capacity. And uh, I don't know, do you, do you think that it will uh, crimp uh, uh, the raising of new capital, like IPOs, initial public offerings, SPACs, and, and new debt? Because I think that those kind of capital market raisings has been, you know, a lot lower than in 2021, where we had, you know, arguably like a pretty big bubble. Um, so do you think that will return or, or no? Well, in so far, primary activity outside private equity has been anemic, right? At least public public issuance has been anemic, not, necessar- not necessarily so in the debt. My gut, and we'll see, my real answer is we'll see, but my gut says yes, it probably will continue to crimp on the ability to have companies raise equity in a public format. Um, But really, Jack, it's a function of will markets go up or not? If markets continue to rise, I'm fairly certain we're going to see IPOs come come next. However, if, if, if this liquidity issue causes an issue, then then no, we're not. If you've been listening to Forward Guidance, you probably know that treasury yields have been surging. Right now, you can get a 5.4% yield on your cash with treasury bills. That's pretty good. It's even better than what you can get with a traditional high-yield savings account. So owning U.S. treasuries is great, but buying them is super complicated, or at least it was. You used to have to go to a bank or navigate a government website that looked like it was designed in the 90s. Thankfully, investing platform public.com has changed all that with the launch of treasury accounts. Now you can move your cash into U.S. Treasuries right from your phone. And you can do it with the flexibility of a bank account. There are no minimum hold periods or settlement delays. In other words, you can access your cash whenever you want. And the best part is that because it's government-backed Treasury bills, it's an incredibly safe place to park your cash. Public.com will even automatically reinvest your Treasury bills at maturity so you don't have to do anything to continue growing your yield. So to get that 5.1% yield on your cash, go to public.com slash forward guidance to move your cash into a treasury account today. Thanks. Let's get back to the episode. I feel like there's a widespread sense in the market that number one, you know, when you had a company going public at 10 times 20, 30 sales, for example, you know, incredibly ridiculous valuation, you know, no one in econ 101 business school would ever justify it. The people who were selling stuff, you know, they don't, they don't justify it. The people you know, at Goldman Sachs writing the note, they're laughing while they're writing the note about how they justify value. Those things, the reason that we have those excesses was because interest rates were at zero and the Fed was doing a lot of quantitative easing. Central banks globally were doing a lot of quantitative easing. And I, for one, bought that. And so now that quantitative easing is behind us, the Federal Reserve is reducing its balance sheet via quantitative tightening and interest rates are at 5% instead of zero. That's a big change in a short amount of time that you wouldn't have those conditions as well. And you know, we don't have those new issues, uh, IPO SPACs, as you said, that uh, activity has been anemic. But this huge surge in the stock market, particularly technology stocks, NVIDIA at, at 400. I mean, I, for one, am surprised that NVIDIA is at 400, while the you know Fed funds rate is at 5% and the Fed's doing QT. Are you surprised? Yes, uh, a bit surprised, uh, definitely. But let's let's keep a few things in mind. Up until two days ago, the breath was pretty poor in markets. I mean, we're talking about 10 to 12 names that have really carried the markets, all the big guys, all the cap weighted and the like. Um, 
in addition, this gets into a, a, a bigger discussion and we'll just summarize it. And I, I, I like to take Mike Green and Charlie McGelly and, and combine the two and it kind of answers your question is that the plumbing market structure, right, of markets has facilitated two very powerful forces that I think explain away a lot what we're seeing. One is, um, and Mike Green talks about this all the time, is the role ETFs play. And, and if the flows are going into ETFs, which I assume they have, employment has been strong, it's very, the, the way it's structured is currently right now, they're very cap-weighted. So all the flows are going into the same names, the same eight to 10 names. And as a result, and those ETFs don't have the stupid or crazy or smart valuation brains that, that active investors have, they just money in, input into the various stocks. The second thing, which is something I have a lot of experience in or a decent amount of experience is, is the proliferation of vol targeting funds. These, these are large institutional pools of capital, mostly in hedge form format, but let's call them alternative investment vehicles, whose structure is predicated and the amount of capital that they're, that, that they're deploying is predicated on the levels of volatility, right? And so volatility right now is quite low. And those strategies, based upon a, a variety of reasons, which makes sadly makes sense to me, is they tend to be long short-term momentum. In English, things that are working, right? Mm -hmm. And so think about the confluence of events of ETFs combined with all these vol targeting strategies. They're all buying the same thing, and that's where the incremental capital has been coming from. So what, and at least in, in my view, that explains a lot away of why we're seeing what we're seeing. Conversely, what that causes, Jack, is stocks that seem rich, assuming the flows continue, can go higher and materially higher because they, there's, there's no memory or brain to tell them that, that it's cheap, that it's expensive. Conversely, stocks that are cheap, the stuff that I typically look at, can get cheaper no low is low enough. And so that is an interesting dynamic of what I think we've been seeing. It's not drastic, but what we've been seeing over the last, particularly the last few months in the market. Okay. So that, that's the setup. How does that impact your, your outlooks on, on stocks? Just the S&P 500, uh, the stuff you don't like, the you know, you know, high valuation stocks versus the stuff that you do like, the, the cheap uh, stuff, you know, sometimes in the, the energy sector, stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I tend to be a bit of a rate of change guy from a fundamental perspective. And what I like to do is marry either changes in, in, in the fundamentals from, from, it could be deeply negative to less negative or negative to positive or, or just a better rate of change combined with better valuations, right? Those are my favorite setups on the long side. I try to avoid simply expensive stocks like that. It, I find just shorting really expensive stocks is, is, is like getting punched in the head again and again and again. It's just not worth it. Um, where, what I'd rather short, I think, are broken fundamental stories. Um, they don't necessarily, it's great if they are expensive, but they don't necessarily have to be expensive. So that, that is where we like to play and where our process likes to play on both sides of the equation. Now, when you think about it that way, from a rate of change perspective, right, 
there's not a lot of good things in the in in our wheelhouse right now. Now we have we tend to be long names because these things are extremely cheap. But I'm in the short term, I'm very, very aware that they might not work in the short term because there's not an audience for it. Uh, on the short side, there's still a bunch of things to do. And what I find, what I'm starting to find a little bit more intriguing, Jack, is sentiment indicators are no longer bearish, right? Particularly, particularly in growthy areas of the market. So, so I, so the short side is becoming a bit more compelling. Got it. But wouldn't you say that the the risk of a squeeze increases as well? I mean, their stocks are the ticker is AI, and it's up twenty percent on in a day. I I am not. I do not want to short AI yeah. because that wall of money. It, I'm not. I try. I'll take this back. I try not to be arrogant enough to think that I can time when the downside is going to be on stocks like AI growth stocks. I don't know. I don't know when it's going to end. Uh, I'd rather wait to see a negative fundamental rate of change before I would enter that, that particular sector. I do not like fighting positive fundamental rates of change. It's not fun. Generally. It. You said you wouldn't short AI. You weren't just talking about the the stock, who, the individual stock whose ticker is is AI, C3 AI, but, but all AI stocks or even stocks that aren't AI, but are branding themselves as AI. I, I try to avoid anything that could have a 20 to 30% rip in my face based upon a false narrative. Now, uh, and if I do do that, I, I, I can't say I'm Ivory Snow. Lord knows I, I'm not. If I do do that, I think of it more of as a trade rather than an investment. And if anyone who does short stocks, uh, and I can say I, I sadly violate my principles more often than I would like, but I try to really adhere to the fact that if, you, if you're going to short stocks, have a pretty tight stop loss and a very readily definable dollar amount of loss that you're willing to lose. And if you hit that target, just cover. How tight is, is tight a uh, stop loss? Five? Percent, ten percent. So if you short something at ten dollars and it goes to eleven dollars or ten dollars and fifty cents, you cover it. It's very idiosyncratic and one-off, Jack. If if I'm doing something that's more in my wheelhouse, say in the financials, I have more flexibility in my brain as to how much tolerance of loss that I will have because I understand. I believe I understand very much so why the stock is going against me. I almost sometimes feel like I know exactly who is against me and what and, and what is happening. I mean, great case in point, we're not involved right now, but SoFi, right, has had a pretty decent short squeeze uh, lately. I know why it has. I know the reasons. And, and we have shorted SoFi in the past. We are not short right now. I might have a more tolerance for pain if and when I'm ready to short that again. Conversely, if I were to short the ticker AI, Right. <laughs> my tolerance for pain is de minimis. Right. I, I just am not going to allow myself to lose a material amount of money on something I really don't know. How much work do you and Porter do on a name before you take a position? Because obviously you want to do a lot of work. Yeah. But let's say you see it as a potential opportunity. If you leave the stop incredibly tight, like a one percent stop, yeah. you, 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 your loss is limited. So maybe you'll, you know, while you put the position on, you, uh, can do the research because you don't want to miss out. I, I don't know. Uh, or no, no, it's it's a great question, and and as you can imagine, it depends. But let me give you where where I like our process to be. Uh, 
we like to put stuff on and then small and then do the work as we put it on to feel it. Mm. Right. So, and I always feel that putting capital at risk forces you to do more work than just doing the work without the capital at risk. I just did this today. I'd rather not say the name because it's really small, but it's, it's actually a potential investment. I was doing work last week on, on this name. And I said, I said, finally, I said, you know what? Put some capital on, put some risk on, and then you're really going to start to do work because you want to make this bigger. Uh, it was on the long, it's on the long side. Um, so that's, that's primarily our process of how we like to do it. Slap some on, do the work, see if, see if your initial views, the work confirms your initial views, and then you could increase it accordingly. And then how do you feel about how many positions you should have? You know, there are people who say you got to own 500 stocks, SP 500 or uh, you know, a thousand. So you're very diversified. Then on the other side, you've got Charlie Munger who says, you know, I own Wells Fargo, Costco, and that's pretty much it. You know, and if, you know, if you're lucky enough to find a stock that you think is great, you know, buy it and don't worry about the other one. So you should only own, you know, two to two to five stocks. How do you think about that? Like, I mean, how many stocks do you have on the long side and the short side? And then how do you think about their correlation as well? I lean more towards the Munger camp, mm. right? Uh, we also tend to be very, very thematic from a fundamental perspective. So if we like a certain industry, we might have a heavy concentration in that industry. So for example, last year, I could say probably 60 to 70% of our capital was in the energy space, right? And there might've been eight to 10 names that we had in the space. So if, if we're feeling it, so to speak, from a fundamental perspective, and we think it's green light, um, we will put on lots of capital. Um, and that's, a, I wouldn't say dangerous is the wrong word. That was the first word that came to my mind. It's not dangerous, but it's, but it's very aggressive. And that's one of the reasons why Porter and I, at least initially, wanted to just manage our own money because, you know, it creates wild swings. So that I'd rather be more concentrated. Uh, if you want to own... 500 names, then pick an index that you'd like. So So let's wind the clock back roughly a year. Mm -hmm. Interest rates are starting to come up from zero. Some of this, you know, a lot of stocks are selling off, particularly the high valuation tech stocks, energy stocks, you know, which you owned a lot of and still, you know, still own a few, I guess. Uh, We're performing very well. Banks were selling off. And yet there were a lot of folks on TV and analysts were saying rising rates are good for banks because they can lend more money. When you heard that on, let's just say CNBC, what were you thinking as someone who did a lot of work? And so take us from June 2022 all the way to, let's say, March 7th uh, uh, before Silicon Valley Bank uh, uh, fell. Well, our first reaction was we laughed, right? Laughed hard. Um, the second was taking that statement, which is a general statement that people view of banks. Uh, and I think we need to, to dig, dig, dig a lot deeper. Um, and, and we'll try to keep it try to keep it simple. Yes, rising interest rates slowly, methodically, is positive for the banking system. However, if it's violent, which it was, right, then it it can cause a whole host of problems. And generally speaking, more often than not, the banking system cracks because rates rise too, too, too hard. So, Take us, take us back. This was in 2022, 2023. We had a differentiated view. Um, I think you youngins call it variant perception, right? That 
the banking system, because of what you said, that rising rates are good for banks, we wholeheartedly disagreed, mainly because we thought the discrepancy between the cost of deposits and alternative forms of risk-free um, short-term instruments, I'm thinking T-bills and the reverse repo facility. Money market would, funds, which would, invest in T-bills and reverse repo. Yeah. Would the discrepancy in yield was so wide, right, that there was a, a potential for a larger than expected deposit run in the banks. And as a result, if that were to happen, the banks unsuspectedly would have margin erosion, not margin expansion. That was, that was, that was our short case for names that are sadly no longer with us, First Republic, Silicon Valley, and the like. I could tell you we weren't bearish enough. What we didn't realize was it wasn't a deposit walk as Bob Elliott says, or a deposit, you know, jog or a slight run. It was a deposit gallop, right? And mainly because the left side of the balance sheets, not because of credit risk this time, for interest rate risk, uh, were in severe, severe issues. Uh, and as a result, we had a good old fashioned deposit run out of the banking system faster than I think anyone would have ever suspected. You had an absolute gallop from particular banks, such as Silicon Valley Bank. But would you say it's from the banking system we, we had it? Because I thought deposits have remained somewhat level. Well, this gets back to this gets back to our initial conversation that Jay Powell did not play Volcker. He probably played more Arthur Burns. We could have had, and you know, it's a lot easy for guys like us to sit on a podcast, right, and and talk from the cheat seats and say, I would have done this. Because Lord knows we might have done something materially different or more closer to what Powell did if we were actually sitting in the seat. But the reason why we did not have a widespread deposit run was because of the facilities they set up. Uh, the BT, BTLP, right. The same, it stands for buy the fucking paper. Um, the, and as a result of that, they shored up the systemic risks associated with the banks. It did not shore up banks from a single stock perspective, but it shored up the systemic risks for the banks that, that capital would not fly out of the banking system. And any bank who needed emergency facilities um, had at its availability uh, the ability to use the BTFP. Okay, walk me through that because I think technically, and, and you definitely know this, uh, the BTFP is categorized not as a deposit, but as a short-term borrowing. So if, if I withdraw my money as a deposit, deposits goes down. And if the bank replaces that with BTFP or discount window, both or FH, FHLB, Federal Home Loan Bank, uh, that their short-term borrowings increase, but their deposits go down. Correct. Then the, the cost of it is high. It's like 5%, uh, as opposed to you know offering me 0% or 2%. But don't deposits go down even with the use of BTFP? The deposits go down. But generally speaking, the deposits are going maybe perhaps to another bank mm-hmm. or perhaps to buy treasury bonds or, or mutual you know, money market funds. But the bank has an ability to fund their loans, albeit at horrific net interest margins. And right. as a result, the value, the underlying value of the equity is materially lower. So when, when you th- if you think about, at least the way I think about what is the moat of a bank, 
right? Like what, what is its value and what, what gives it its value? It's always the operational accounts, the deposit accounts that are non-interest bearing, that are zero cost of capital to the bank. So they could fund short at zero or close to zero and lend slightly longer and earn a spread. If that, if those deposits are declining, which they are, and they still are, that's one of the reasons why I can't really go gung-ho on the banks right now, um, then you're going to experience net interest margin erosion at the banking system. Not only that, you actually lose uh, a decent amount of what I think is the true value of a regulated banking system. Which, which is what? Sorry. Oh, it's just, it's just the, the moat. Banks never had to compete really against anything for what was considered safe, where you would park safe savings and not fear that you were going to lose any of your money. That's the beauty of the banking system. That combined with having your checking account there along, that gives you or businesses the ability to pay bills. You have no problems keeping your cash there because you feel it's safe and you don't mind getting zero on your, on your savings or on your yield because it's there for a transactional basis. However, if you keep excess savings there, you still didn't mind it, but there were no alternatives. Like generally speaking, for the last 14 years, T-bills were at zero as well, or close to zero. One-year notes were close to one. And so, so you didn't move your money. However, when all of a sudden you can get 5% on your money versus keeping it at a, a bank, which you had to call them up and knock them on the head to get a higher yield, mm-hmm. um, and they still probably wouldn't do it unless you extended your duration, there was a deposit walk or a deposit run. And in the in the 80s, was there an issue where because I mean, the, you know, yields on treasuries and money market funds went, you know, close to 20%, but bank deposits, I think for a time were limited at 6%, maybe called regulation Q. I, I don't know. But uh, how did banks get around it then? Well, thankfully, I'm not that old. Right. So I don't know the, but, but there are examples. I, from what I hear that people that are, that were around at that time, what we're experiencing right now is very similar to what they were experiencing way back yeah. when, just not so as in your, in your entire career, you entered the, the business, I think in the nineties, correct. The, the banks have not had this problem. Never this severe, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. When rates rose, we all worried about deposit betas and eventually that the cost of deposits would have to go up relative. And it was more of a net interest margin concern. It was never a run on a run on banks as a result of it, which let's be fair. That was a quite unique, unique experience at Silicon Valley is that after the fact, we realized that what Silicon Valley bank was their right side of the balance sheet, the non-interest bearing accounts, a sizable, sizable portion of them were uninsured deposits and a sizable, sizable portion of them were in few hands. So if those few hands, like they did, left the banking system, that bank was extremely vulnerable. Do you think deposit run or deposit gallop risk is higher just in general now than it was during the the great financial crisis? And I'll give an example. I I forget the details in Washington Mutual, uh, the largest bank failure in US history uh, shut down by Sheila Bear, who, who I interviewed you know, a few weeks ago. Uh, but I think it was you know maybe 10, 20 billion in, in a few days, maybe up to up to, up to a week. Whereas maybe, I think maybe you know around 10 billion. Whereas Silicon Valley Bank, 
at the peak was a million dollars was leaving the bank every single every second. Yes, which was much faster. And you know, people now most people bank on their phones, whereas back then you could bank on your computer, but a lot of people still went to the branches, so it was fa- slower. And that's a and Jack. That's a material risk factor today versus way back when. Let, let, let's add additional layer to Washington Mutual. Let's remember the left side of their balance sheet was flooded with toxic first lien and second lien mortgages where the underlying value of the collateral was materially less. So as, as the creditors to Washington Mutual, whether it were the depositors or, or if you think FHLB or any of the other sources of creditors for the bank, were really questioning the value of the left side of the balance sheet, which, which caused the further runs on the bank, as Sheila probably probably is astutely aware of because she was, she was knee deep in the regulate, uh, the regulation of, of, uh, and the cleanup of the banks. Um, but Silicon Valley, there's no doubt new technology, the ability to move your, your, your funds from, from one bank to another financial institution is so quick that it adds an additional element of risk to the asset liability mismatch that is inherent in a, on a bank's balance sheet that, it probably requires additional regulation of some sort to make, to ensure that this doesn't happen again. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that point of regulation. There's a piece in the Wall Street Journal today saying that big banks could face uh, up to 20% boost to capital requirements and, and that this would, you know, hopefully boost the resilience of the system after a spate of, of mid-size bank failures this year. How do you feel about this proposed um, legislation and you know, how, how did you think about the capital of Silicon Valley Bank, which if you went on you know, their uh, you know, investor deck or, or uh, uh, 10Q annual report, it was, it was a good, like their, their common equity tier based, risk-based. Uh, well, Jack, risk-based, hey, Jack don't do it. It was like don't, it was 11% or something. Don't do it. Don't go core tier one. All right. This, this is a long-winded rant for me. That's, I don't know where I'm going to go on this tangent, but I'm just going to keep good. talking until I stop because I got a lot, I got a lot of anger on my mind associated with this one. First, let's start with um, the capital of the regional banks prior to this happening. Their capital was woefully inadequate, in my opinion. And the sad thing is all of them, every bank, every global bank uh, hides under this concept of core tier one, right? Which what it does in its simplicity is say, okay, of the assets that are on my balance sheet, each of them has a respective risk weighting. And the less risky assets have a lower risk weighting, meaning I have to hold, I hold less capital against them. And the higher risk weights, I have to hold more capital against them, right? Every single bank always squared up to have a core tier one that, was, that met regulatory requirements. However, I will tell you, those, those risk weightings always cause a problem. And, and you show me the asset with the low risk weight, I will show you the next bubble, right? It's, it's just... Pure and simple. And where were the lowest risk rates, Jack? The lowest risk rates were in treasuries, securities, and all things that were considered risk-free. And that was the problem that we had this time around. So people like me, particularly I spend more time covering specialty finance than just regulated banks. I know the regulated banks well, but I really spent my time cutting my teeth on specialty finance. Look at a much simpler method of calculation of equity. And I call it TC or, or, or tangible common equity ratio. You're just basically straight taking the tangible common equity and dividing it by the assets. Let's keep it simple. All the regional banks, most of the regional banks had a TCE ratio 
that was sub 6% and some of them were sub 5%. So that means for every $100 of assets you have in your books, you had less than $6 or sometimes $5 of equity on, on your balance sheet. So when we were looking at some of the regional banks that, that we since sadly have gone into receivership, you realize, and it was a much easier calculation than what we did during the Great Recession, is you just simply looked at footnote eight, I'm making it up, or footnote three, and realized that the unrealized losses associated with their, their available for sale and held to maturity securities was greater than their tangible common equity. So in and of itself, the banks were underwater, which doesn't mean much other than if there's a deposit gallop, then you're really screwed. And that's what happened. So, And the deposit gallop feeds on a, a fall in confidence because of that asset liability mismatch. Correct. And, and that's why the, the Fed, along with the FDIC, had to come up with a remedy as soon as humanly possible. Uh, so when I look at the banking system now, do I see the potential for more um, bank failures? The answer is yes, I do, particularly if rates continue to rise, right? Will they be of the size and magnitude of the First Republic or Signature? I don't think so. They'll probably be of the smaller variety. See, when I look at rates, to me, rates are in a financialized economy, Jack, in a levered economy, rates to me are the leading indicator of everything. Almost everything we do is bought on a monthly payment basis. And so as a result, if you continue to raise, if rates continue to rise, I think we're going to have a, prob a bigger problem. It's showed up a little bit, but I think it's going to get worse. If I were the Fed, and this gets back to the initial article that you mentioned, so we'll get, finally get back to the question that, that, that you asked, I would be very, very reluctant to raise rates further. And of course, that might cause a rerun of the 70s, right? Which, which would be a material problem because we've probably not done fighting this inflation, although I think... I think our inflationary issues are not necessarily rate driven anymore. I think there's other reasons why we have it. But what I would do, which is what the article referenced, is I would increase the capital requirements and perhaps the margin requirements on all things secondary trading and derivatives. And then, then there, you finally get the, some of the froth out that is associated with current market conditions. So I was actually very happy that I saw that proposal. I was, I was actually shockingly said, wow, is someone actually listening to me? I doubt it, right? Because no one does. But I thought it was, a, a, I think it's a step in the right direction. Just to ex explain a, a point that you made. So there could be a bank that let's say has $100 billion in assets and $5 billion in equity. That's the risk capital that it's holding against the uh, um, uh, it's all of its assets. That's the tangible capital they're holding against. Yeah. Tangible capital. Right. So that could be what in reality it's, it's 5%. Correct. However, let's say if half of those of their assets in an extreme case, such as, you know, similar to Silicon Valley bank, 50 billion of them, let's are invested in agency mortgage backed securities 
Brokerage backed securities, people think the big short, which you were involved in, but it's totally different. It's not credit risk. These are guaranteed by Fannie Mae, Ginny Mae. Those risk, but they have huge amounts of interest rate risk because as interest rates rise, people who have the mortgage don't prepay, so they, you know, negative convexity. Um, so $50 billion worth has a 20% uh, risk weight. So that's you only have to that's only $10 billion of risk capital. So you actually have let's say if everything else had 100% risk weight, you had $60 billion of 60 to five, yeah. which is what a 12% uh, a thing, which you know, you're looking pretty well capitalized there. Correct. And that's why I always ignored core tier one as a construct. So whenever anyone mentions it, and I'm probably being a bit snobbish of it, because this is what I know fairly well, I just sit and laugh and say, that's not the way to properly look at the, the, the capital of, of an individual bank. Um, and, and as you can imagine, take it a step further. And this is, this is what caused a lot of the issues that we are seeing that we saw over the past few months. During the Great Recession, the issue was a credit issue, right? And as you can imagine, every politician and regulator knew they had to do something and they have to fix it. So they fixed it. And what they did was put very onerous weights, risk weights on all things loans, right? But they put very light risk weights on all things securities, um, including netting of derivatives and counterparties and matchbooked. Um, so if you have a big investment bank and you're carrying a hunk of derivatives on the long, you know, gross, gross, you can net them out. And the amount of capital that you hold on it is not a material amount of capital, at least in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, so what did every bank do over the last 14, not every bank, what did many banks do over the last 14 years? Emphasize the lower risk weights relative to making loans. Now, the beauty of that was that spawned one of the greatest bull markets in private equity we would probably ever see in our lives, right? So glad you brought it up. I was about to ask you about that. Um, but on the other hand, it created very, very levered banking balance sheets and of course, schmuckingly, I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going to use it, schmuckingly increased their securities that they had at the wrong time when rates were extremely low, which made them very, very vulnerable to interest rate risk. Got it. Thanks. I just want to correct myself. I think earlier I said that the revised capital, uh, $60 billion of assets of risk risk capital versus $5 billion would be 12. It's divided by 12. So it would actually be eight or nine on the, right. on the on the capital. Okay. So visit. how did this phenomenon where regulated banks could not make a, a lot of loans based because the risk-based capital was high, and yet they owned a ton of securities, you know, which had a lot more interest rate risk rather than credit risk. Tell us how did that uh, uh, spawn a boom in private equity? Because private equity, you know, it exploded since the 80s and then 2005, six, seven, it was, it was getting really frothy. But then 2008 was a, you know, a great deleveraging and it, it looked like the golden age of private equity was over, but it wasn't. No, it, it, it was far from over. So, so if you go through, and it's been a long time, the, the details of the Dodd-Frank, Dodd-Frank, essentially the, to me, the guts, the skeleton of it is, is that they didn't want the banking system playing in risky loans and ventures, which to me opened the doors for the entire private equity in, industry to do that. So back in the day, loan, banks used to make collateralized, but also non-collateralized unsecured loans to corporate credits because the risk rates were so high or the leverage of those underlying corporations were too high. Banks can no longer play in that arena. 
here comes private equity, which was allowed to make these loans, make these investments without any regulatory, with very little, I won't say any, I'll probably get in trouble for that, with very little regulatory oversight. And that allowed them to build these extremely profitable businesses um, where LPs, limited partners, their investors, would invest in direct credit loans. So loans that were made by the banking system way, way back when were now being made by various private equity pools of capital, earning uncorrelated returns with a heavy sharp ratio, um, which as you can imagine, as the performance came in the door, that was going to attract serious amounts of capital from the pension system. And it did. And, that, and that's what, what we have today. These beasts known as private equity was spawned, in my opinion, a, a sizable portion of it from the last major regulatory overhaul of Dodd-Frank. Private equity and private debt too. Oh, definitely. Private equity and definitely private debt. Yes. Especially and, and, private debt. And what do you think when people, you know, private equity say, oh, actually private equity is preferable because it's not as volatile. If you invest in the S&P 500, you know, it has a volatility of 20. Whereas, you know, we marked it at a, our, you know, $100,000 position on January 1st. And, you know, on February 1st, it was $101,000. It's very, very stable, Vincent. Oh, it's extremely stable, particularly when, particularly when you need not market. Um, or you could come up with some qualifying opinion where the mark, even though comps, publicly traded comps or, or and the like would suggest, strongly suggest the values are lower, they, they would not market at all. And, and quite frankly, I, my one bone to pick, it's probably out of jealousy, to be quite honest. I, I never thought the investment community would take on this much risk on liquidity for the sake of not marking to market. Um, it's, it's, it's surprising to me, but look, it happened. God bless. Congratulations. My concern would be if I was the LP, the underlying investor, in, I wouldn't say in many of these assets, you are being overpriced for, in terms of fees, management fees, for the stuff that you guys actually own um, relative to where the value probably should be. And I'm thinking specifically, Jack, mostly on real estate um, and the like, where, where they're just simply not marking the assets to current conditions. And as a result, because you get a management fee on your initial, your initial allocated capital or lower, you're getting charged management fees, I think, on something that's mismarked. It's, 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 it's not right. Right. And if the stated value is a billion dollars, but the real economic value would be $700 million, they're saying it's a billion dollars and they're getting that 2% fee off of the billion dollars. That's why it's in their incentive to to continue market there. You know, Vincent, uh, you know, reading the Big Short book and watching Big Short movie, that phenomenon of large financial institutions not marking things to book was a big theme in 2005, 6, 7, and 8. It sounds like you're saying it's back again. In what ways do you see a similarity there? Um, or, you know, is it is it a lot? Uh, there is a similarity, but it, there's so many differences as well. It's not nearly as bad. It's not nearly as bad because... Well, <laughs> You say this. It's not nearly as bad because the liability streams of the underlying private equity structures are materially better than than the banks. Let me explain what I mean by that. Yeah, they're trapped. All the banks, a good portion of the bank's funding is coming from deposits, our money, our operational accounts. So if the left side of the balance sheet is 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 mismarked, it's a problem for all of us. 
on the private equity, that is not the that is not the case. It's usually the 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 LP streams for the most part is unlevered investment pools. However, um, because a larger larger portion of our pension investment investments are in the private equity stream, it is also very pop- possible that we have a pension crisis, given that the return profile we'll see is not as impressive as they're suggesting. Got it. But then on the pension side, doesn't higher bond yields actually make it better because pension funds can own more U.S. treasuries, whereas before, you know, they, they, there's no incentive for them to own zero yielding paper. Yes, and 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 that'll probably be one of the people, one of the investment pools that will buy some of our paper, which will be good. But then that gets so, as you can see, Jack, all of this is tied, right? Mm-hmm. And if that is the case, then that creates a crowding out factor because if they're buying treasuries. They're not buying absent leverage, absent leverage. They're not buying alternative uh, investments. So on private equity, the assets are having some issues, you know, real mm-hmm. estate debt, the actual companies themselves, the borrowing costs have gone up to, you know, to some extent they are hedged. What about, so, you know, what's your outlook on those stocks? I mean, you know, Blackstone is a publicly traded stock. It's funny because it's actually, you know, invest in private equity deals and stuff like that. I mean, are you, you know, predicting a, there will be, uh, a lot of struggles for those you know, uh, private equity companies and their investors? Or do you think the fact that there's these fund gating and investors can only withdraw so much every month, there won't be a bank run because it's not a bank. It's just a shadow bank and it, and it has imposed uh, withdrawal limits. I don't think there's going to be a bank run because of what you just said. Um, and absent someone of a higher authority calling them out on that, uh, that should be fine. I also have to respect the fact that these are superior, superior business models relative to the banking system. So as a result, absent my concerns about the assets that currently reside uh, under AUM, I'd be more constructive on the private equity industry rather than rather than uh, very reluctant or, or quite frankly, shorting them. I think right now, given my concerns, particularly if rates continue to rise, and I think they're going to be facing a sizable adverse refinancing wave if they have to, because most of the investments that reside currently in private equity structures are levered, right? Um, and as a result, they eventually have to have a refinancing wave into new forms of debt, which is my guess going to cost them more combined with the fact that if you're lying, so to speak, on the underlying value of your real estate, there is a come to Jesus moment, so to speak, when you actually have to refinance your, your cap structure on the underlying investments. So as a result, I would say if, if I'm long-term constructive on, on the structure of private equity, but near-term bearish on the underlying investments that reside in private equity. Got it. And at the point about the leverage, you know, there's this narrative of the U.S. and the global economy, it's so financialized, there's so much debt, the Fed can't possibly raise rates to 3%, let alone 5%, because there would be a widespread default. Borrowing costs would go up. Well, interest rates are at 5%, and you know the sun has rose today. You know, And a lot of, a lot of companies, you know, private equity companies, they, they're still around. And somehow, I don't know, maybe they borrowed a longer duration than people thought. Maybe the debt is more sustainable. I mean, how do you think about that that argument about Debt loads are too high, so interest rates can't be high because interest rates are high. I mean, relative to zero. Well, put me in that camp, put me in that camp, so I guess I could speak for 
for the naysayers who say that rates can't go materially higher, I come at it from two angles. Uh, I think we spoke about it, but but it, but I'll explain it again. From a government perspective, I think there's a crowding out effect because the interest expense that governments have to pay, our government will be specific, have to pay in a higher rate environment. I personally think there's no way we could afford interest rates to go to six to seven percent and stay there, right? Because if they stay there, then all of a sudden we're talking about an interest expense line item on our on our balance sheet that is materially higher than almost anything else other than healthcare. And that's, I mean, think about that concept, Jack. That's that's freaking scary. That that our interest expense is a bigger payment than defense. That, that, that's ins- that's insanity. Uh, but the- you can take the opposite side of it's an it's a liability for the government. And for, uh, you know, uh, fancy word is like obligors. That's a Jim Grant word. But for people who own the assets, like if you own treasuries, you're getting 5% instead of zero. And that, you know, can be stimulative as Warren Mosler of, of you know, the MMT school made, I, made the case. I agree, but let's take that to its extreme. Okay. So what are we supposed to do? Just continue to run deficits far as I can see. So it could be stimulative to the savers. It, it makes no sense to me at the end of the day. Uh, I would be more along the lines um of trying to come up with a much more prudent fiscal approach rather than say, well, it's stimulative so we can continue to run chronic deficits. The other issue I have, and then, so that was number one, with higher rates is again, it comes back to think about the poor, you know, not poor, middle class, the typical middle class, upper middle class or lower middle class consumer who's going out and trying to finance a car or finance a home. All of a sudden, you're paying materially more money on a monthly payment basis than you were two, three years ago, yet we are not allowing or or refuse to allow price discovery of the underlying collateral that would lower the monthly payment. Because if we actually did have that, we would have tremendous collateral damage across many different asset classes. So, Auto loans? What? Auto loans? Auto loans. Home loans commercial real estate, um, you name it, as rates go higher, just the simple spreadsheet says that the value of the underlying collateral, the underlying asset should go, should go down. And if that's the case, how in the world can we afford 7%, 8% interest rates when the underlying collateral is still super elevated? Um, it would force, in my opinion, just based upon logic and math, a deflationary issue. So I think our country, given the amount of debt that we have, works materially better, if it works at all, with lower interest rates. But we have this problem called inflation that we sort of need to slay the dragon. So like- Right, so Vincent, yeah, the, the inflation dragon, do you think it has been slain? You know, the price of energy, oil has, has gone down a lot, but on the core side, it has, you know, inflation has been pretty resilient. What, what, what's your outlook? I think the improvement in energy costs is a definitely uh, a a welcomed positive rate of change for the underlying consumer and the like. Although I don't think any of us has seen it at the price of at the pump and the like. It has come down, but it's not in a material manner. I'm worried about more, about, and so that that has improved. And I think that's probably Jack one of the reasons why you're seeing a more resilient economy than I think a lot of naysayers believed is that some of the costs of the underlying commodities have declined enough 
where we're not feeling the, 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 the real pressure that we were experiencing in 2022. However, that hasn't really materially changed the incremental cost of a new home or the incremental cost of a new car. That's more rate driven than, than anything else, which so I kind of think we've walked into what we're seeing in the economy, which is all things current in our lives, whether it's a vacation, whether it's whether it's going out to a restaurant, the smaller things um, are working reasonably well. However, the larger ticket items um, are a bit of a struggle. And it's mainly because we've the, the price of, of a monthly payment for those big, uh, large discretionary uh, tickets is very cost prohibitive. Got it. So Vincent, just going back to the banks, you were sort of laughing when you know, folks on TV were saying rising rates were good for banks. They yeah. are when it's slow, but when it's 500 basis points in a year, they're not good for banks as we have seen, or at least some particular types of banks. How did that affect you and Porter's outlook on the banks? Are you, were you less long on the banks? Were you shorting some of the banks? And 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 then how did that outlook change when you know the banks, some bank stops collapsed? Um, you know, start with Silicon Valley Bank, I think on March eighth or March March tenth. Yeah. We closed out a sizable portion of our shorts after the most recent banking crisis, mainly because we believe our thesis has has played out. I mean, these stocks are materially lower than where they were starting in the beginning of the year. Some of them are actually zero. Um, so uh, on the other hand, we actually started buying um, some banks, but I like to call what we used, um, it was a winner thesis. Um, I use pop culture analogy a lot. You ever see the movie Talladega Nights? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so where, where Will Farrell's giving his infamous speech, you have to be a winner. And he mentions a bunch of references. One is Rue McClanahan from the Golden Girls. I'm showing my age a little bit. Um, and so we chose the winners. And what we meant by that was anyone who is getting assistance or won via the FDIC, the bids for various bankrupt assets were declared winners. First Citizens, FCNCA, New York Community Bank. We did not buy J Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan, but, but that fits it as well. And our view is right now, if I was the FDIC, I would be in the business of choosing winners and losers because you need a very healthy, robust banking system to make all of this work. And so as a result, while we are not heavily involved in the banks right now, we own, we own two names, First Citizens and New York Community. They've done fairly well. Um, probably some of the best performing banks since early March, probably. I, I, just, just to make sure I get this right, we bought New York Community after they acquired Signature Bank. I did not think they were going to get it. It's been, a, it's been a nice one. We did buy First Citizens before they won Silicon Valley, mainly because there were rumors out there that they were going to win. And we had a prior experience with them when they acquired CIT at an incredible price of 46 cents on the dollar. Uh, I, think, I think there's going to be bank M&A going forward, but it's not necessarily super healthy bank M&A. It's more required M&A. So we could shore up and make our banks healthier. And so you said you're not that involved in the, the banks. I remember in you know, early March, you were saying, we're kind of dropping everything we're doing that's not financial because we're financial experts. So we feel like there's a lot of, you didn't say alpha, yeah. but you know, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. A lot, lot of yeah. opportunities there. 
uh, do you feel like there's not as much alpha there? Go long this company, go short that company? Because, I mean, bank stocks are very volatile, up and down. Well, they're very volatile, um, but precarious, right? My, my bias would be to own them because they're cheap and out of favor. But I also know I could wake up tomorrow morning and a bank could sell assets at like, like PacWest did at 92 or 90 cents in the dollar and the stock could be down 30%. So I, I don't think I have the all clear signal, mainly because the fundamentals of the underlying banks are not there yet. I don't think I have the all clear signal to really go out and invest in banks. And, and the other thing that's a running joke for us is, you know, prior to us doing other things in the energy space and the shipping space and, and other, other sectors, we were financial specialists. And yet we were joking around saying during our entire tenure of being solely sector specialists, I think we could cap probably 15 to 20% of the time we were bullish on regulated banks. We've never been bullish. We've never liked the underlying fundamental backdrop of banks. And we usually waited until there was a material adverse credit event or a material adverse capital event where these stocks traded at 50, 60 cents on the dollar. And then we felt extremely comfortable investing in them. I don't think we've yet to truly see all of this play out in terms of the deposit block, the deposit run. However, I'm very, very mindful that these stocks are reflecting something bad. So to some extent, the, the bank gallop is priced into a lot of these stocks that are trading. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. And, so, and I, so you're, and not, it, you're not long or short the vast majority of bank stocks. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Got it. Okay, well, let's move on to energy, which you, you and Porter have been, been long since 2021, maybe, maybe 2020, mm -hmm. uh, which performed phenomenally well 2021, 2022. Yep. Uh, but probably since about June of last year, when the price of oil was at $120, some oil stocks, particularly the you know non-Exxon Mobiles, non-Chevrons, the small and mid-cap stocks have uh, encountered some selling pressure. How? What's your outlook on the sector? Why you, do you think they're going to go down? Uh, it's more likely they go down than up over in the short horizon. And if that's the case, why do you still own them? <laughs> Good questions. Um, so as as I said in the past, Jack, there's two real factors that dominate our our, our brains um, on any given day. One is valuation. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll name three. One is valuation. Maybe more valuation, fundamental trends, which is, and I like to call it, do you have key performance indicator headwinds or tailwinds? Um, and then what is the long-term outlook for the space? So in the banking system, two of the three, I think, still exist and reside. They're not expensive by any stretch of the imagination. Their balance sheets, because of the excess profits they've earned over the last two years, the majority of the, their balance sheets are in pristine condition. Uh, for credit side. For the credit side. Just, just looking at, if I look at ratios like net debt to EBITDA or, or, or just debt as a percentage of cap, these stocks are, are far in far better shape than they've been in, in a long, long time. Um, the one negative, and in a market like we have now that is really narrative dominates a lot in terms of near-term direction of stocks, the one negative is that the key performance indicators, at least in the near term, are headwinds, not tailwinds. So I like to view it as in the near term, the performance 
expectations of a stock to me is based upon something I like to call investor TAM, which is investor total addressable market. How many people are actually going to go out and buy, and I'm picking on a name, it's actually a name that probably has a bigger investor TAM than the others, Occidental Petroleum, which is owned by Warren Buffett, Mm -hmm. right? And I equate to some of the energy names, particularly some of the names we like that we own, such as coal, is the equivalent of being a Jets fan and going to a Jets Detroit Lions game before Detroit was good in December at MetLife Stadium, right? Okay, so you'll watch that game and they'll pan to the crowd and say to themselves, you'll say to yourselves, wow, that place is completely empty. There's only 10,000 people there. I will look at that crowd and say, wow, I can't believe they got 10,000 people to actually go to this game. Yeah. I think everyone who wants to invest in coal names right now are invested in coal names because of all the things I said, they're cheap, their their balance sheets are pristine, the fundamentals long-term are materially better than probably uh, what what there's there to forecast. But I know know I'm well aware that no one's going to sell their NVIDIA to go out and buy, you know, Warrior Met Coal or, 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 or AMR or, or any of the um, coal names. So what you try to do is risk manage it, keep it, keep it smaller. But you know, over the next few months, you're not going to make any money on these things. So however, what I, we're waiting for, the all clear signal, is not when the rate of change turns positive because it probably will be too late or, or too late to own them. But when you're in such negative debts door that, and they're so cheap that the rate of change can't materially get any worse. And I don't know if we're quite there yet. They're down, but, but it can get worse and we're well, cheap can get cheaper. Mm. Vincent, final question for you. Do you think the Fed put is dead? If we have a spasm in markets where, you know, the markets are down, SP 500 is down 30% in a short period of time. I'm not talking about a eight month protracted sell-off where it's only yeah. sort of the technology darlings that you know never generated any profit yeah. to begin with are, are down, such as we had last year, but one where, oh, the VIX actually gets to 50. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, fear in the air. The Fed does start to cut rates, which is priced into the forward curve. I mean, do you... Do you think the Federal Reserve will, will cut rates if we, if we get that? Jack, mark my words, right? Mm-hmm. The Fed put is never dead. Is never dead. And I think they've proven that to me, at least, uh, in October of 2022 and during Silicon Valley. And again, I'm not saying I would not have done what they did. We have a significant amount. Our, our financial structure is so damn levered right? That it makes it very, very difficult for us to sit there and say, let this thing fail. Because, because I think the implications of letting this thing fail are catastrophic. Um, because there's so many stuff that is tied, given the, given the importance of capital markets and, and assets relative to the overall health of the global economy. So I don't think the Fed put is is dead at all. In fact, I think it's it's it would come alive and kicking um, if if there was any type of adverse economic or market reaction to something. Got it. So the Fed put still lives. 
Fed put definitely still lives. There's no doubt about it. And, and I would actually go even further. The Fed put still lives and the prospects of quantitative easing still lives. Is it here with us right now? No. But that, that, that monster, and I view it as a monster, is lurking out there somewhere, just waiting to be used if need be. Got it. Thanks, Vincent. I, I know they said my, that was my last question, but to just go throw this one at you. you know, Vincent, the way that you and Porter you know, made your money is by going long stocks that do well, short ones that uh, don't do well, <laughs> not based on macroeconomic performance, although you think about you know, the macro a lot, but you know, that's pr- primarily you're a single stock guy. That being said, and I say a lot of people who generate alpha, they do single stocks, not you know, guessing where the wind's blowing. That being said, how would you estimate this sort of probability, macroeconomic probabilities about whether we have a recession, will it be a mild recession, when we might enter that recession, mild or severe, or do we have a reflationary boom because you know there are all these excess savings and the higher interest rates go, the more just stimulus that is, which is a you know theory that I'm only recently starting to think about. Uh, for me, based upon the work that I've done throughout my, my career, and I tend to be a person that, as we said, I played in the financial services arena. I played in the specialty financial services arena, mostly with consumer finance. So, so the health of the consumer has always been something that dominates my, my, my thinking of the economy. Based upon that, it's hard for me to see a reflationary boom. That, that's the one thing I, I can't foresee absent, it's, it's so improbable, a material lowering of interest costs for the overall U.S. consumer, absent, which would require a material change to inflation without some form of economic collapse. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense to me. I think the best we can do, and it might be decent for markets, it actually might be really good for stock pickers, to be quite frank, is that we muddle along from an economic perspective for the next five, 10 years. As, as we wrestle through our, our, our debt burdens. So um, I think that's, my, that's probably my base case scenario. My, my economic scenario would get worse if we decide to raise rates again, another 50, 70 basis points, and we have a commensurate increase in the long duration bond, the, the yield on, on the 10 year and the 30 year, back up north to four, four and a half, or, or, or heaven forbid, 5%. So um, that, that's probably my, my top-down macro view um, that dominates my perspective. So with the energy, we didn't talk about that we are invested in uranium. I forgot that. Oh, okay, okay. You want to, yeah, yeah. T- tell us about yeah, uranium. Yeah, and so like, as we mentioned, um, things such as coal, which, which satisfy our super value factor, one of the sectors that satisfies both factors, particularly uh, rate of change, uh, which is uh, in their KPIs, which I think is positive, valuations, which are not super positive, but if, if the price continues, they'll, they'll walk into it, is really nuclear and uranium. This, to me, fits everything we like, right? On the one hand, I think because it's one of the cleanest energy so- sources, with the best baseload power relative to almost anything else, um, I think this has a five to 15 year runway to be a higher percentage of energy um, across the globe. And as a result, I, to me, I wanna be there 
as the nuclear industry regains its footing post Fukushima. We've been there for three, four years, um, and we own it in a variety of different ways. We actually own it through the Sprout Funds, which, which mimics the price of uranium. We also own the, and it's, and you know, as I say this, please do your own work. And the reason why not I say this, not investment advice, but the reason why I'm saying that and, and explicitly is that the stocks really have worked lately. So I hate giving out a name. You look at the chart and you're like, thanks, Vinny. Right, <laughs> like, right, really help me out. But I would put it on your ra radar screen, which is Cameco. Um, ticker is CCJ. I think they're also benefiting from the fact that as we bifurcate, sadly, this globe into two and energy security becomes more and more of a factor as to how we are running our energy policy, hopefully, um, Cameco is one of the largest domestic and what I consider domestic Canadian vertically integrated uh, nuclear plays in the game. Got it. Well, Thanks again, Vincent, and uh, thanks everyone for watching. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Check out today's sponsor, public.com at public.com slash forward guidance. That's public.com slash forward guidance. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again, and be well.